But the lawyers in New Mexico, in Arizona, in Wisconsin, who were called up by the Giuliani's and the Jenna Ellis's and the Joseph de Genova's and said, hey, would you put your name on this pleading? Will you file this for us? And they did it. Now they're going to face the prospect of their livelihood being taken away. They're going to they're going to see the enormous costs associated with engaging in that. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Michael Teeter. He's a lawyer and political operative who is managing director of the 65 Project. The 65 Project is a bipartisan effort to sanction the Trump lawyers who abused our legal system to try to overturn election results and create the propaganda that fueled the January 6th insurrection. They've only just officially launched, but have already filed a bunch of complaints. The 65 Project is another example of people who are hard at work trying to repair the damage of the Trump years and counter the ongoing threats to our democracy. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Michael Teeter of the 65 Project. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Michael, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Michael Teeter. I am the managing director of the 65 Project. I graduated from Yale Law School now two decades ago and have been involved in politics and law, worked at large law firms, also taught at the University of Utah College of Law, as well as Georgetown Law School and my alma mater, Pomona College. And uh, and I was also an assistant uh, attorney general in the state of Utah. And I've also been in involved in my own civil rights works, starting my own civil rights law firm, and then have worked as general counsel at a national advocacy organization for ballot initiatives and for expanding ballot access. Yeah, you've had a interesting and complicated career, I've noticed. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I always find that when I was in law, I missed politics. And when I was in politics, I missed law. So I've tried to find a synergy between the two of them. And I think I've succeeded finally. <laughs> You start out with a little bit of democratic campaign work. Yeah, actually, um, even before I went to college, I was volunteering for the California Democratic Party. Took some time off in college to work at the California Democratic Party as a assistant finance director, and then after law school, um, left the law and moved to Northeast Iowa and was a organizer for John Kerry's campaign in the caucuses. And. Campaign manager later for Herb Cole? Right. So the Kerry campaign sent me around uh, as they're wont to do during the election cycle. And after the uh, primary process, they sent me to Wisconsin to be the statewide field director there for the general election. 
And then after the Wisconsin victory, but the ultimate defeat, I loved Wisconsin so much I stuck around and then was hired to manage Herb Cole's reelection campaign. Tell me about a little bit about that one. That was an interesting experience. I started, I think, in about February of 2005 and began with a plan to make sure that Senator Cole could use his his popularity to ensure his reelection and put together the campaign plan, worked through the, the first year of that. And then my first child was born in Wisconsin. And so I actually left the campaign and returned to law and moved to Washington State where I worked at Perkins Coie. And that was the political law group that Mark Elias, people like that are part of? Exactly. So when I was there, uh, Kevin Hamilton, who's still there in Seattle, is a major part of the political law group. He is the one who, along with Mark Elias, goes around the country every two years and and litigates these matters, usually very successfully. And, um, and Mark Elias now has split off from Perkins Coie. But yeah, that was part of the group. Right. So you definitely started to obtain quite a background in political law through that. I took a year to go teach in the federal legislation clinic at Georgetown Law School, did that for a year, and then taught at Pomona for two years um, as a visiting professor. How did you land at Represent Us? That's another group kind of in this space. Tell me a little about that and, and what that experience was like. I joined Rep Us last year, last April. It was partly because I had been doing some campaign election law work um, in my practice, in my private practice. And some clients had told me about this group that was looking to hire an attorney. And so I reached out and, uh, and engaged with them and came on to Rep Us in, like I said, April last year. It's an organization that's you know doing incredible work. They are focused on talking to not just progressives, but conservatives and finding that gap between the two on these kind of issues that should be um, should be something that all sides can agree to. And in fact, in some states, um, they do agree to. Vermont and Utah have a lot of progressive, if you will, about access laws. That's RepS's uh, mission, and it's a good one. So tell me a little bit about the genesis of what you're up to right now with the 65 Project. Great. Yeah. So Melissa Moss, who has a background in democratic politics, um, for a while now has been pushing this concept that lawyers need to have accountability around what they did in 2020 to ensure that they can't repeat the same kind of behaviors in 2022 and 2024 and going forward. And she kind of corralled a group of people eventually to agree with her and form this project. And in late December, I was brought into it and formally started in January to help lead the effort. Tell me a little more about Melissa. Um, Melissa's background is um, in democratic politics. It's uh, also, also, like me, a California native. Um, and she worked for the Commerce Department under Ron Brown in the uh, early to mid-90s and helped start the Democratic Leadership Council. She was also the I think finance director for the National Democratic Party in, again, the early 90s. And then she's been consulting. She's not a fundraiser. She's been a consultant, a strategic advisor since then, starting her own business and has been engaged in other activities, including something called LawWorks, which was set up a bipartisan effort to help protect the Mueller investigation, to make sure that when there were attacks on it from partisan sides, that there were a group of bipartisan respected leaders to kind of speak out in favor of allowing the Mueller investigation to continue and to make sure that it was completed. Sounds like you and she come firmly from democratic politics as I do. What have you done to make it a bipartisan effort? Well, we have, we have a bipartisan board. We have Paul Rosenzweig, for example, who is um, a member, you know, was part of the 
um, early '90s uh, Ken Starr team, I believe. He was also he's part of the Chertoff group. He was worked in Republican administrations at the Department of Homeland Security, and we've we've heard a lot from um, bipartisan groups, and we're we're engaging with a lot of. Um, people within local communities who are bipartisan, as we set up our local teams of lawyers to help file the complaints in the future, we're reaching out to both Democrats, Republicans, uh, mainstream conservatives as well, who are appalled by the way that the legal profession has been used and abused by the Republican uh, lawyers in Trump's corner to, to engage in political propaganda. So we've had that kind of support from both sides. That's that period of time after the election, before January 6th, where a bunch of lawsuits were being filed, the lawsuits didn't feel that dangerous yet in a certain way because they were all losing, but it was more the public statements around them and the kind of bullshit in them that seemed alarming. Tell me a little bit more concretely about what happened in that period in the in the law with respect to the electoral process you've hit it on the head so the lawsuits were never designed to succeed on the merits they were part of a political propaganda tool they were part of the republican effort to be able to say outside of the courtroom look the courts are considering this look the courts are engaging with this look we brought these claims look we've made these allegations look courts are taking it seriously and because the lawsuits were not designed to succeed losing doesn't deter their future use in that way. And so that's what the project is about. You're absolutely right. During the contests following the election, there weren't actually any, if I'm, I, I don't think any, maybe one or two um, election contests, true election contests. They were allegations about constitutional rights and, and violations of statutes that were not related to trying to secure an actual count of the vote, but were designed instead to build up momentum towards a false narrative that would allow then Trump and his allies to lay claim to overturning the election based on popular mandate. They used the allegations that they put into lawsuits to go to legislatures. Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis going on a tour of various state legislatures that Biden had won to say, look at all these allegations we've made in these lawsuits. You should decertify Biden's victory and certify for Trump. And they used the false elector scheme to push that narrative as well. And then you have the culmination of that, to some extent, the culmination on January 6th, where at the rally, they're talking about these election challenges, they're talking about the fraud claims, and they're pushing them um, forward. So you're exactly right that these lawsuits weren't designed to prevail. They were designed to be part of a larger political propaganda narrative. Do you think that some or all of the lawyers who are pushing this political propaganda believed it? I think some of them did. There's something in the law called willful blindness. <laughs> you believe it, but you're, you do so because you're putting blinders up to the actual facts. And I think that if, to the extent that anyone believed it, they believed it because they were disregarding fact and law just because they wanted that narrative. Now, are there some lawyers who thought, yeah, states should have changed the rules to allow for more mail-in ballots during COVID, or they didn't go through the right processes. I think that there are probably some who believed that portion of it, but they didn't have an actual factual legal basis to make the claims, and they brought this stuff into courts, and that's the problem. Does it matter if they believe it legally? It seems to me like it, it might. I, I know nothing about the law on this, but it seems like if you believe there's voter fraud and people give you evidence and then you file, it's different than if you don't. 
Does it matter? I think it matters to a degree in terms of culpability, but not with respect to whether or not they violate the rules of professional conduct, which require you to do due diligence as a lawyer to ensure that the facts that you're presenting to the court are accurate to some nature. It doesn't mean that you have to have all the facts. No lawyer has all the facts when they first file a complaint, but you have to have a, a legitimate basis for the facts that you're alleging. And numerous courts have already have said that the lawyers didn't meet that threshold and have referred some lawyers to their state bars for discipline. So we're just furthering that effort. So one of the one of the filings that you made is, uh, is Joe DeGeneva, is that how you say it? Yeah, Joseph yeah. DeGeneva, yeah. So, and kind of some, a lawyer who is kind of famous, been in the news for decades. Um, tell me a little bit about like that particular example, like what, what did he do and why, and what are you saying should be the consequences for that misbehavior? Right. So Joseph DeGeneva was one of the more, um, on the side of the Trump attorneys, but he was a Trump attorney. He was present at Rudy Giuliani's press conferences, I think on the first one or so, November 19th, and he stood alongside him and listened as Rudy Giuliani espoused a lot of nonsense and lies and falsehoods that everyone knew were lies and falsehoods. Um, and that was that was one effort that DeGeneva did. He provided assistance to somebody who was engaging in mistruths and fraud. And then in addition to that, he then, when he spoke up, he had this notorious interview where he spoke of Christopher Krebs, who was the cybersecurity director, who had spoken up and said that, that the 2020 presidential election had been the most secure in American history. And Joseph Genova took that affirmation by Trump's own department and said that Christopher Krebs should be drawn and quartered and taken out at dawn and shot. And lawyers can't engage in that kind of language, um, especially when you're talking about a group of supporters who might take it seriously. I mean, we, we only need to look at what happened to Mr. Krebs with regards to his Twitter feed that he was getting emails and text messages to his cell phone. He was receiving um, death threats repeatedly from Mr. Trump supporters who had taken Mr. DeGeneva's comments and grown on it. And then you only have to look at January 6th to see that there was a real risk involved here that thousands of people could threaten and engage in that kind of behavior. So um, it's alarming. And Mr. DeGeneva then deserves to be sanctioned for that. A lawyer cannot intimidate potential witnesses and third parties. You have to have respect for third parties when you're representing another a client, and you also can't engage in the fraud that he supported with Mr. Giuliani. So we know that Rudy Giuliani has been punished by the New York bar and the DC bar. He's had his license suspended, and there's a rule um, in every state professional conduct policies that say that a lawyer who assists another lawyer in engaging in misconduct is engaging in misconduct themselves. And to the extent that any of these lawyers assisted Mr. Rudy Giuliani, who has been suspended for misconduct, then they too have engaged in misconduct. Among the complaints you filed so far, who do you think was the most egregiously bad lawyer? And, and if you could sanction one of them, that would be the one and why? Oh, that's a great question. I think that each of their conduct is, is horrendous. And I would have to put it into categories. I mean, I think that obviously we filed a complaint against uh, a lawyer named William Calhoun who is in Georgia, who was part of the insurrection, literally participating, was in the Capitol, taking photographs of it, filming it as he was in there. That conduct is beyond the pale 
but I don't think that if I were going to find somebody who needs the most deserving of sanctions, it would be him, partly because I think that he'll have criminal sanctions coming up, and I don't think that he would be made an example of, and most attorneys don't engage in that. I think that if I were to identify anybody, I would say it's probably Jenna Ellis of the group that we filed against, uh, because she was you know, next to Rudy Giuliani at every press conference, she was engaging in, in media appearances. She was tweeting infamously these lies and this propaganda. And she continues to this day, even on January 6th, she continued to tweet at uh, Vice President Pence talking about her disappointment. So I think that her behavior is, is pretty reprehensible. The fact that the judiciary didn't fall for this in this particular case in general, is that changing could they have found forums that were more supportive? Like there were all those Trump appointments. If we had another round of this, how well could we count in your estimation on lawsuits not being successful? I, I get that they could be used for propaganda, but at least uh, they didn't go any further. I think in the federal court, we are probably in a safe enough position. I think that even Trump appointees were rejecting these efforts. Uh, the challenge, I think, and the scary part is when we talk about state judiciaries, especially those where they have uh, popular votes for elected officials who then feel the same kind of impetus to agree with the, the push of the Trump most vocal Trump supporters. Otherwise, they might lose re-election. So if we're talking about states like Wisconsin that barely rejected these efforts, not to say that even barely rejecting wasn't sufficient, but and barely rejecting means they didn't even hear them. We don't know how the Wisconsin Supreme Court would have come out on the merits, but they rejected even hearing the efforts by a 4-3 vote. So I think that we are in danger in, in having the state judiciaries in particular allow themselves to be used as in these tools and to ultimately take away the, the protections for election integrity. How about the, the raft of legal changes that have come subsequent to the election, have that have they made it a lot easier or substantially easier for lawsuits to be filed for successful challenges or even for colorable uh, causes? Yeah, I don't think that they've made the likelihood of success or opportunities for litigation greater. I think that what they've done is tried to take give to legislatures greater authority to overturn the elections themselves. And that's that was, again, part of their strategy in 2020. They were not just going to courts. They're going to legislatures trying to get them to overturn the outcomes. And that's where I think there's the greatest risk. A, that the Republican Party is seeking to make it harder to vote and make the outcomes less likely to be an actually legitimate result. But second, that even when we have legitimate results that they don't like, they will use the legislatures to overturn them. That's what that's the greatest concern. How about around the issue of mail-in ballots where like we had cases where because of the pandemic, state authorities allowed people to vote in different ways to, so that they could actually vote. And the objection on the other side has been something like that they didn't have the legislative authority, they didn't have the legal authority to relax the law in that way. And I think there's been a lot of clamping down on that. How does that change the playing field legally? Uh, legally, I don't know if that does. There's a, there's a longstanding expectation from the U.S. Supreme Court that states can't change 
rules too close to an election. But the states weren't changing rules too close to an election. They were starting to change the ballot access and the vote by mail rules starting in March of 2020. In fact, in many states starting to deal with it for primary elections, not just the general election. And so there was there's no true concern there that, that was animating um, Republicans, to be honest. It was just the concern that the greater access people have to cast their vote, the more likely it is that Democrats win. That's that's ultimately the foundation from which they object, which is why in states that are dominantly red, Utah's an example, they have some of the most expansive vote by mail options because they're not worried about Democrats winning statewide elections in Utah. And there's ample evidence to demonstrate that vote by mail is safe, secure, and a legitimate form of voting and participation. Uh, so I think that what you're seeing are legislatures trying to, as you said, tamp down on that not out of fear that there's legitimacy at stake, but but really that it's outcome-oriented. I'm nothing more than a casual observer of ethics complaints in the political arena. And I, I did note what, as you did, the sanctions against Giuliani and, and a few other people. But what do you think the prospects are? I think you guys so far found like 111 lawyers and it's probably expanding from that. What are the prospects for the system sort of working to discipline them? And how might that vary sort of state by state? What do you see is happening out of this work that you're doing? That's a great question. The challenging part about filing bar complaints is that they typically go into the bar complaint system and they're in a black box for a while and you don't know what's happening. I think that we will see some success in a lot of the states. We've already started to see some success in states. Um, that is in built part from the fact that courts are validating the effort by themselves referring lawyers to the bars for discipline, which is, of course, a stronger statement than anything we could do when a court does that. I do think that there will be success in the efforts because we have and we will compile a significant amount of evidence to demonstrate that the lawsuits were fraudulent, that they were bogus, that they were not filed in good faith. Um, and that they were largely an effort to twist public opinion rather than actually seek to demonstrate any real voter fraud. There will be some hesitation, I think, on the parts of bars to want to engage in something that feels partisan, which is why it's so important for us that when we work with the local lawyers in the jurisdictions, that we assemble a group of well-respected, well-regarded lawyers who can bring this effort on our behalf as well. Look, we have a former president of the American Bar Association who's on our advisory board. We have former chief justice of the Utah Supreme Court, who is the president of the Conference on Chief Justices. And we have Senator Daschle, and we have a Republican lawyer, and we have a top ethics lawyer in the country who is on our advisory board. This is a true effort. And I think that the initial reluctance on the parts of the bar organizations to want to engage in something that feels like it's politics will be lessened once they start looking at the facts that we'll present to show that actually what we're aiming for is to remove the politics from our courtrooms. And this is part of that effort. It seems like going after the lawyers who are misbehaving on behalf of their clients is a little bit of an oblique blow. The true misbehavior in chief is the person who is like hiring people to file these lawsuits. How much do you think this would diminish the, the opportunity for a governor fighting for 
his office to do this kind of stunt or for Trump again or a Trump-like person in the presidency or aiming for the presidency? That's a great question. I think that if you recall a few months ago, there were a lot of headlines about the legal team that Trump has gotten to fend off against the New York investigation into him, Letitia James's, and people decrying the fact, supporters of Mr. Trump decrying the fact that he really wasn't able to find the legal talent that allowed him to successfully navigate such an integrate process. That's our objective, that when there are law firms, prestigious big name law firms who are engaged in these lawsuits, there's more willingness and legitimacy handed to them. And we want to take that away from Mr. Trump and any elected official or candidate who wants to use our courts as a political tool. Part of what you're getting at, I think, is that you know there are the Rudy Giuliani's and the Cleta Mitchells and the and quite frankly the Jenna Ellis's of the world who aren't truly lawyers; they're political operatives. And I don't think that we will ever successfully get them to stop engaging in this kind of stuff. You take Rudy Giuliani's law license away, he'll keep doing most of what he's already doing. But the lawyers in New Mexico, in Arizona, in Wisconsin who were called up by the Giuliani's and the Jenna Ellis's and the Joseph de Genova's and said, hey, would you put your name on this pleading? Will you file this for us? And they did it. Now they're going to face the prospect of their livelihood being taken away. They're going to they're going to see the enormous costs associated with engaging in that. And I think that they will create a deterrent against them. In addition, we will be going into the states and letting People know that these bar complaints have been filed, letting the local community know that when you engage in this way, you run the risk of having bar complaints filed against you, losing your license, having it suspended. And so I think the next time that they're called, they might say no. For example, in Michigan, the Michigan lawyers who defended the state and the city of Detroit and then successfully brought requests for sanctions in those cases and had $180,000 of attorney's fees assessed against the plaintiff's lawyers. It is what's called joint and several liability on those claims, which means all the lawyers who have been sanctioned have to have full responsibility for the full amount. So if somebody else doesn't pay, then they're on, on the hook for all of it. Well, there's Sidney Powell and there are the, you know, Lynn Wood, but there's also the associated law firm who maybe spent an hour on the case, but put their name on it. I think the next time that they're asked to do that, they won't. And they're the ones who lent legitimacy to it and their professional integrity and their career to that process. And so I hope that it will become a deterrent effect. It can only become a true deterrent if you're successful. You take a big risk in a certain sense in going after them if they evade it, if they manage to get little slaps on the wrist and and people come to understand the opposite from your effort. How much do you worry about that? I don't worry about it much at all because I don't think that the risk is weighted in equal proportions. So the risk of doing nothing means that I think that they'll continue to engage in it. There's zero risk in losing on these bar complaints, if you will, because they were already incentivized to engage in the behavior. And if there were no consequence to them, then they would continue to do it. It's possible as well that lawyers will generally feel a sense of um, greater ability and willingness to engage in it if they see that there's only a slap on the wrist or there's no consequence. But again, I think that they, I think they would engage in it without the effort on our part. But there's also more than just 
the bar coming down on them. There's also professional reputation, even without regard to whether or not the bar decides to discipline. So not to say that it's the most important part of the effort, but as we let the community know that these lawyers have engaged in this, they might lose clients. They might have their law firms, like Cleta Mitchell's law firm, she was at a big one, saying, no, we don't want to be engaged with this. And so not allowing their lawyers to take these cases or having those lawyers face internal repercussions that are outside of the grievance process. So I think there's a real opportunity there to affect the person, even if there's not sanctions. Whenever there's an effort like this and then consequences, the side testing the, the boundaries of the system learns from it, right? They learn, okay, well, maybe we need to separate the propaganda from the lawyer, right? Because the lawyer gets in trouble. So we'll just have a different person making the crazy claims that isn't subject to bar sanction. They might learn, we need to find a little bit better evidence or narrow the suits and make them more successful. If you had to worry about the other side getting better at trying to undermine democracy legally and through this kind of propaganda, which has convinced a huge proportion of Americans that there was a stolen election, what would you most worry about? I worry about it outside of the the courtroom, to be honest. I don't worry about lawyers' engagement. I think it is about the efforts to allow the legislatures the opportunity to decertify, to re-examine the decisions, often by Republican secretaries of state, like we saw in Georgia or in Arizona. And because the legislature is so tied to the electorate, not in a positive way, I mean, this is part of the problem too. This whole effort is broader than just the need for election reform related to litigation. This is partly driven by gerrymandering. This is partly driven by the fact that we don't have a very many contested seats anymore. So the the base is the ultimate decider of who is elected. And because of that, you're going to have state legislatures who are attuned to the need to appeal to that base at all costs. And so that's where I have a lot of fear. I, I see the point about they're learning from this and then taking it one step level. You know, it's 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 like a variant. Absolutely. It'll it will evolve. Yeah. And I think that's exactly right. Um and we'll but the the difference this time is that we are a group that will be there monitoring it, watching it, and we'll evolve with them. So tell me a little bit more about this as an organization. So is it nonprofit? How do you find funding? How many people work there? It's a nonprofit. We are part of LawWorks, which is fiscally sponsored by the uh, Franklin Education Forum. Uh, so we are we're a nonprofit. People have been donating. We obviously only launched formally and publicly today. Already our website is collecting lots of uh, support. We have lots of uh, people coming in looking at it and also donating. We have some foundation support. We also have some support. We have support from individual contributors. The political entrepreneurship that's involved in making that happen. Tell, tell me a little behind the scenes about how this all came together. Yeah. So it started, like I said, with Melissa Moss starting going around to people and saying, hey, I have this idea. Will you help? And ultimately, she spoke to one of her friends, David Brock, who um, is a well-known Democratic activist. He started Media Matters and American Bridge. And as he says, you know, he likes startups and he hasn't done one in a while. So he he thought this was a great opportunity, a great cause. And so he and Melissa began working together to could put the initial funding and initial structure um, 
in place. And so once they got the idea generated, then they brought me on board. They had some initial contributors helping in that way. Like I said, I, I spoke to them, I think for the first time in December, formally brought on in January. We already had a couple commitments, one I think uh, on the advisory board. And so began reaching out to our networks to kind of expand it and grow it. Then hired some research assistants to start doing the, the legwork on what we would need to be able to file a complaint. And then, as I mentioned, in Michigan, we've had some lawyers who were successful in these efforts already. And so we brought them on to be advisors as well. And so they have been helpful as, in helping us move forward quickly and faster than we ordinarily would have been able to because they have the experience with working in the litigation. And so they're going to be able to help um, make this an, an efficient and effective effort because they've looked so deeply into the the claims that have been made. There were complaints filed by Trump's allies who would that would refer to cities that weren't actually in that state. You know, they were just sending and filing cookie cutter complaints uh, that were copied from one state to another without regards to whether or not they were factually relevant. That's kind of our organizational effort and how we got started. There were existing efforts, one of which you're referencing, to what extent do you have allies that are institutional or free-floating in this, and who are they? There were lots of groups that have taken up this issue as part of their overall mission, I would say, um, and we've talked to every single one of them as far as I know. We wanted to demonstrate that we are um, supportive of their efforts, that we have a, a narrow lane, which is bar complaints against all the lawyers who were engaging in this and then also seeking to um, hopefully promulgate model rules for the ABA to have the states then draft and promulgate themselves and adopt. But Lawyers Defending American Democracy is a great example. They are a group that has filed a bar complaint against Rudy Giuliani. They filed a supplement against John Eastman in California. They had a lot of work that they were already doing, and this is one of their efforts. The same with another group called States United, which filed this amazing bar complaint against John Eastman thorough, well done, amazing, but they haven't then started going after the additional lawyers that were involved in it. And that's where we come in. Um, and there are lots of groups of all the things I've mentioned in terms of being a fearful of, there are lots of groups like Protect Democracy um, and the Campaign Legal Center and other groups that are really engaging on those fronts as well, which gives me hope and a lot of, um, allows me at least to sleep at night that, that, that these other groups are engaged. But this was a gap that we saw that there needed to be this system of accountability, this comprehensive deterrent effort that was not just targeting one or two lawyers, but all of them. Did, did anyone feel like you were stepping on their toes or did they potentially feel that way? Did you have to work that kind of politics a bit? We've never heard that. We've only heard support for our efforts. We have met with each of these groups as often as we can. We want to support their efforts. They're supporting our efforts um, and we're engaged deeply with them. We're good allies in this space. Another uh, thing that happens in politics after you have an effort like this is the other side thinks, okay, well, we're going to file ethics complaints against their lawyers, right? And in fact, there, I think there are some out there already in cer certain cases. You're a bipartisan group. I assume you would file a complaint if a Democratic lawyer was misbehaving in this way. But what I'm more worried about is a bogus complaint coming out of the right because of the situation. Any thoughts about that? I think you're right that we can expect that, that we should expect that. The odds are that some of them have already been filed. Um, 
truthfully, though, I invite it in the sense that I, I would like there to be a clear comparison between the way that you know Democratic lawyers have engaged in this versus the Trump lawyers in 2020. If we want to talk about Mark Elias or Perkins Coie or firms that were engaging in A, election protection efforts, or B, winning <laughs> across the country, that invites a, a great comparison to the lawyers who were using this as political propaganda that where they've already been referred to sanctions. I'll put it this way. You know, the court in Michigan had an opportunity if they felt like it was necessary to refer all of the lawyers for sanctions in the Michigan case, but they chose only one set of the lawyers, and that was the Republican lawyers. There's already a clear difference between them, the two sides, and if they want to invite greater comparison on paper, we welcome it. We talked at the beginning of this interview about your career and kind of what grounding you had and, and path that led you to this. How is this a good fit for you? How much do you enjoy it? How is this personally for? Yeah, this is, that's a great question. Thank you for asking it. As I mentioned, I've often kind of, when I'm doing law, I miss politics. When I'm doing politics, I miss law. And I love them both. And I love them because I think there is so much good that can come out of the work that somebody does as a lawyer. And there's so much work that somebody can, so much good that can come out of the people who are running campaigns and who are running for office. And so having an opportunity to defend the integrity of both is ideal for me on the personal and professional level. I became a lawyer because I believed in the good that it can do. And I engage in politics because I think that is the place where most good can be done. It, and it feels like a lot of synergy there with the kind of my values and my beliefs. 65 Project is named that because there were 65 complaints. Is that right? There were 65 lawsuits when we began, when we named the project. You know, there, has, uh, there are some lawyers who are responsible for changing it so that we're probably not at 65 anymore. There's not a, a, a certain number. Uh, but we stuck with the 65 Project because A, that was the name, uh, that was the right number when we named it. And B, I actually, I mentioned I'm a California native and, and this is maybe too um, tangential, but there's, there's Proposition 65. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's been around since the 70s in California that requires there to be a label on any product that has a known carcinogen in it. And I liked it because the synergy there, because I think that um, the lawyers who engaged in these efforts were a cancer in our court system and we shouldn't allow them to metastasize. So I like that parallel. I remember when there was some Supreme Court nomination or maybe it was also a uh, lower judicial nominations and the ABA rating was taken to be an important signal about like how qualified. But then there was a move to attack the ABA and their ratings as being partisan. There's a chance that it undermines the power of the ABA and causes a lot of problems. And we end up with like two different categories of legal associations. If we continue down this path of polarization and we have Trump in for another term and he continues to undermine the systems, could we end up with a really broken legal system association part of it? I suppose that's an ultimate possibility. I think it's, it's the tantamount to, you know, Trump starting up his own social media opportunities because he doesn't like Twitter. Um, so I, I suppose it's possible. I think that the, the, you're referring to a great point in history, which was uh, in the 
early George Bush, so 2001, they started to say that the Senate would no longer wait for the ABA ratings uh, when the when the ABA would rate the judicial nominees. Um, and they said it was partly because they were, you know, biased. And they were towards, undermining the, the, those ratings. Yeah, the rate, they were undermining. Yeah. Absolutely. There had to be a lot of work done by the ABA to get back built into the process. So I think that the ABA is going to be cautious about wanting to engage overall in this effort, but I think that their membership will want to. There have been thousands of lawyers asking the ABA to engage in this. And I think that the opportunity then is to engage in it in a way that makes clear that it's not a partisan effort. The rules that we're talking about wanting to, to adjust here are rules that can be, um, frankly, put into very... Um, broad and neutral terms that are about election integrity or engaging in uh, election processes or undermining American democracy. It's not different to me than the rules that prohibit lawyers advertising. And it's not different than the rules that prohibit how careful you need to be with your client's money. I mean, there are special specific instances of press around uh, a trial. So I think there are lots of rules that allow us to have an example there that we can build off of and to do it in a way that matches the integrity of the ABA and ensures its continued integrity. There are always going to be people who say, we don't like these rules, therefore you're biased because we don't like them. But I think the majority of the American Bar Association and its membership would support these kind of changes. In the minority, is there any significant legal philosophical argument on behalf of this kind of crew of lawyers? Is there some, is something being worked up to defend them in the law or in the law schools, et cetera? Not that I'm aware of. I imagine that there's a lot of effort to tie what they did to the First Amendment and their right to free speech. The courts have rejected that. The Supreme Court has said that the rules for professional conduct uh, are there necessary restrictions on speech because you're engaging in conduct and the importance of the legal profession is too great to allow people to say whatever they want. And the court rejected Rudy Giuliani's effort to make that argument when he sought to avoid suspension of his law license. So I think that that would be the argument, and I think that courts would, would largely reject it. Are there any other areas in the intersection between politics and the law that are dangerous for our democracy that you could see an analogous effort being launched in? That's a great question. I don't, off the top of my head, I don't see one. I think that the legal, the, the courtroom battles are a distinct feature of this. Um, and I don't think that there's a lot of opportunity to have them intersect. I think the more dangerous effort is the effort to get the courts out of that process, which is to say, to, you know, there are lots of rules for how you have to uh, engage in an election challenge. Every state has specific rules. You have to do it within this time frame. You have to do it in this order. Courts will treat it this way. And I think that the political effort underway is to take the control away from the courts and put it into state legislatures. That's where there's the, the danger. Yes, you could imagine an election solidly won by one side and then flipped by Republican state legislature in a close state. That's exactly right. On, I mean, on some pretext. Yep. And you not just imagine it, that was the effort that was partly underway. And, and again, to bring it back, they, you know, Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis, when they were going 
across the country and speaking in Georgia and speaking in Michigan and Arizona and meeting with those legislatures were pointing to the legal battles they had to support their efforts. There is an effort to try to reform that Electoral College Act or whatever the act was in the 19th century um, that is is a mess and kind of allows some of the openings to do this. Would that shut that door at all? How entangled are those things up? They're not entirely entangled. So reforming the Electoral Count Act would not take away the ability of the the efforts that are underway to get the state legislatures to have the power and authority to decertify or determine a different outcome than what the lieutenant governor or the secretary of state have determined was the correct outcome. I do think that it's important to demonstrate and clarify the rules around the Electoral Count Act. But even that assumes that there were openings that were being exploited, and I don't think that that's the case. Even John Eastman, when he was speaking to Vice President Pence's chief of staff, he acknowledged that that he was just asking for a minor violation of the Electoral Count Act and that no member of the Supreme Court would agree with his interpretation. We know that from the House Select Committee's recent release of documents. And so we, we know that even the lawyers who were promoting this knew that it was bogus. Do you think Eastman has gotten himself into significant trouble? If he wants to practice law, he has. I think that the California uh, State Supreme Court will probably disbar him or at least suspend him. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that I should have? I don't think so. You've covered so much more than I ever would have imagined. It's been a very interesting uh, 45 minutes and uh, appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything else you want to say? No, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. I, I, I appreciate yours. That was Michael Teeter. Michael is at the65project.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.